Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I'm continuing my conversations with various people on the subject of fossil fuels and climate change. Today, we're going to focus specifically on what this means for state-owned enterprises. And my guest is Patrick Heller. Patrick is an advisor at the Natural Resource Governance Institute and a fellow at the Center for Law, Energy and Environment at the University of California, Berkeley. His research focuses on the governance of state-owned enterprises. He has worked with enterprises, governments and activists all over the world as they think through how to help these companies deliver benefits to their citizens. I have had the pleasure of knowing Patrick for a good 10 years since the days of Revenue Watch, now the Natural Resource Governance Institute. Patrick, it's wonderful to speak with you today and welcome to the Sheila Kam Extractive Podcast. Thank you so much, Sheila. It's such a pleasure to be with you um, and to get to talk to you in this new venture after, uh, as you've said, having had the chance to collaborate in many other forms. It's a real honor to be with you. That's fantastic. So. Uh, at the risk of state and the obvious, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners, what do we mean by a state-owned enterprise? Well, state-owned enterprises are really right at the core of uh, the management of global oil and gas markets. What we mean by state-owned enterprise is uh, a company um, whose ownership either is 100% controlled by a government or is majority controlled or essentially where the state is in control of the decisions of the company. And just as a starting point, I, some of your listeners will probably already be aware, but state-owned oil and gas companies are really dominant players in the global industry, right? So we hear all the time about the Exxon Mobiles and the BPs and the Chevrons. And of course, those multinational oil companies are, are, are really important market players. But it's actually state-owned companies that produce the majority of the world's oil and gas and that control the overwhelming majority of global reserves. So we're talking about giant players such as Saudi Aramco or the Russian companies Rosneft and Gazprom. But there's a whole range in the kinds of state-owned oil and gas companies that prevail in the marketplace. So even countries that are relatively small producers such as, say, Ghana or Suriname um, also have state-owned enterprises that help them in the management of, of the industry, often in partnership with private oil companies. So you, you mentioned that uh, not only do we have very large players uh, in terms of uh, private companies and publicly listed companies, but that we also have state-owned uh, enterprises. As we uh, move towards the decarbonization of uh, the environment, uh, what difference, if any, are we seeing in the responses between multinational corporations and state-owned entities in this particular uh, incidence? Yeah, it's a really interesting, really, really important question. And as you noted at the outset, my colleagues and myself have been looking over the last year or so at what state-owned companies in this space are, are, are doing and how they are starting to respond um, to the climate crisis and what it means for their business and, and for their economies. Um, one thing I'll, I'll say at the outset is that there's a there's a large range of different kinds of state-owned enterprises, and so, you know, we see some SOEs um, in the oil and gas space 
that have announced some plans around um, you know, what they are doing in response to climate change. So several state-owned oil and gas companies have uh, announced uh, what their efforts will look like to um, reduce the carbon intensity of their production. So to limit the flaring that they're engaged in or to um, you know, make their energy sources uh, more uh, carbon friendly. Others have announced um, their intentions to start investing in clean energy alongside their uh, core oil and gas business. And so we have some companies, you know, the, some of the big Gulf state-owned oil companies, for example, and Latin American NOCs such as Ecopetrol from Colombia or YPF from Argentina that have started to take some steps. Um, we have other state-owned oil and gas companies that have have barely made any public plans uh, uh, known around how they see climate change and the global transition away from fossil fuels impacting their business. And so, you know, there's a big range. I would say that, you know, multinational oil companies at least are investing in the PR around what climate change means for them. That doesn't mean that multinationals are all taking significant action but they are at least engaging in some of these discussions. In the national oil company space, the state-owned company space, we see a lot more uh, of a mix in terms of how they're responding. One thing that I wanna say overall though, is that you know, these companies remain overwhelmingly focused on oil and gas as their kind of core business. And I, I'm sure we'll talk about it over the course of the conversation, but you know, they are planning to pump trillions of dollars of new investment um, into new oil and gas projects just at the time when the world you know is beginning to recognize more that there's a need to shift away from the sector and that creates certain really significant risks for the environment but also for uh, the home countries of these state-owned enterprises so I'm sure we can talk more about that but you know that's really what's been animating a lot of our thinking and 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 the learning that we've been trying to do. Hmm. So we've spoken about uh, uh, differences in response between multinationals and state-owned entities. Let's look at the uh, state-owned uh, enterprises themselves. Uh, as you rightly said, the, the Gulf region uh, has huge uh, multinationals that basically uh, are dominating either the oil or the gas space. Uh, Africa is the same, whether you're looking at Algeria in gas or Nigeria and Angola in both oil and gas. Uh, are there any regional differences in terms of how the sovereign states that own these entities uh, have responded to the call for reduction in investment in fossil fuels? Well, I will say right off the bat that across most NOCs, we are not seeing yet any significant shift away from investment in the fossil fuel sector. So somewhat across the board, NOCs in the plans that they, they talk about and you know, in the strategies that we see them executing are uh, continuing to push forward on big new projects. And that, that, that in, incurs really significant risks and really significant challenges um, you know, th there was a Bloomberg article recently that was focusing on the real prospect that NOCs will 
fill the investment gap as multinational oil and gas companies may start to move away from it. So we're seeing places where, um, you know, big IOCs such as BP are saying, okay, we are going to reduce certain kinds of oil and gas investments. And state-owned companies um, have announced in many cases that, okay, we see this as an opportunity. We may be able to grow our market share. So that's sort of a starting point is that I would say across the board, most NOCs um, remain or continue to plan for large new investments. And there's a big number of these investments that will only pay off um, if the world fails in its, in its climate goals, right? And so there's a real trade-off here, right? NOCs are putting money on the table today in the hopes of a payoff over the longer term. But a lot of these projects will only break even um, if oil and gas consumption remains high enough that it keeps prices high enough that these projects will, will succeed. So that's sort of a starting point. But, but to respond to the other part of your question, we are seeing regional differences in the way that NOCs uh, with state-owned oil and gas companies are talking about adaptations to their business models, not fundamental transformations, but adaptations. And so a lot of the big Gulf um, and even North African um, national oil companies such as, uh, such as Sonatrack or the Gulf companies such as Saudi Aramco um, or Qatar Petroleum are starting to look at investments in clean energy so that they can start to capture a share of that market investments in carbon capture and storage, um, shifting uh, a heavier share of their portfolio to gas as opposed to oil. And I would say that the, the, the major reason that we, we seem to be seeing this more in the Gulf in particular than elsewhere is that these are companies that, you know, for, for lack of a better term, have more money that they can experiment with, right? The big Gulf state-owned companies are relatively low cost producers of oil and gas. They have larger profit margins. And so some of them see an opportunity for themselves to start to move into um, uh, spaces that may enable them to continue to thrive as they, uh, you know, even as the world shifts to a, a broader margin or model of cleaner energy. So I think we've started to see more steps, concrete steps in terms of investments uh, in some of these spaces in the Gulf than we're seeing in Sub-Saharan Africa or in Latin America, for, for example. But I just want to be clear. I mean, the overall picture is a picture of these companies still betting big on oil and gas. Hmm. So, so really, it's not uh, a departure from uh, petroleum as it is uh, an opportunity to diversify the portfolio, albeit based on uh, petroleum uh, revenues. So, so uh, I mean, if you one of the, the the implications of what you're saying, of course, is that uh, the investment that the state-owned entities are making now can either reap rewards depending on how long uh, consumption of uh, fossil fuels. Uh, remains, but also they can make a loss. But either way, uh, in the short term, it does seem, doesn't it, that uh, there will be a cost to these uh, national oil companies or other state-owned entities, uh, if only because of the global uh, shrinking of fossil fuel uh, 
market. Uh, do you agree? And if so, ha have we done any studies on what the potential economic cost of oil dependent and gas dependent uh, countries might be uh, as we decarbonize? Yeah, it's a really important question. And I think one of the critical questions, not just for state-owned companies, but for oil and gas producing economies, which you know, for decades have become uh, dependent on this sector for uh, you know the kind of continuing functioning of their economy, and you know the the work that my organization, um, the Natural Resource Governance Institute, does has always been around, um, let's say, the unmet promises that sometimes are made around the oil and gas sector, right? Where um, these are you know trillion dollar industries, and always with a lot of promise for the citizens of the producer countries. Um, but in, in more cases than not, unfortunately, that promise has often gone unrealized. And one of the big you know, uh, points of emphasis that we and partners who we're working with all over the world are trying to make right now is that it's really time for oil and gas producing countries to um, get serious about economic diversification that, the oil and gas industry oil and gas industry is on a timetable and if if the producer countries don't adapt now if they continue to think that um you know the the kinds of revenues that have been pumped out for um the last several decades will be the same that they'll see in the coming decades i think they're in for um a really rude awakening in a lot of places and so what one of the things we're really trying to focus on is the need to start getting serious now about economic diversification and figuring out what the alternative drivers of, of these economies are. Easier said than done, of course, but that reality check is, is really important. You know, there was a study that came out recently by the Carbon Tracker Institute, which estimated that worldwide um, over the next couple of decades, um, oil and gas producing governments are going to experience a, a, a shortfall of up to 13 trillion US dollars if the world meets its climate goals. That means that the money that these governments are counting on now won't be anywhere near what they can actually um, uh, earn in the event that the world makes serious progress against, against climate change. Um, and so th that's sort of the, the, the preamble or the overall framing. The reason that we're so focused on national oil companies in particular is um, these companies are in many oil and gas producing countries, they're actually the entities that take in the, the lion's share of the oil and gas revenues that the state collects, right? They sell the state's share of oil and gas. They're engaged in business that is generating revenues. But the business model of most national oil companies has always been take that oil and gas money, reinvest it in the sector, right? You know, thinking of the oil and gas sector as the goose that lays the golden egg, these companies are putting the money, reinvesting it right back in oil and gas. And to do that now, as the oil and gas sector changes dramatically and as the prospects for long term profits erode dramatically, um, is essentially taking public money that could be used to invest in diversifying the economy and putting it at, at risk, right? And so, you know, we took a look in our study at all of the money that 
NOCs are slated to spend over the next decade, and that's about $2 trillion. And what we found is that more than $400 billion of that money won't break even um, in the event that the world meets or comes close to the Paris goals. So that's money, the citizens' money that NOCs are spending now that only, only pays off if the world burns. Um, and you know, we think that's a, a significant risk to the climate, but we're also raising the call that investments that NOCs are making in high cost projects are really unlikely to generate a positive economic return. And so it's time to reconsider those today. Mm. So you, you've uh, uh, made essentially two cases. One, uh, historically, uh, the, the return uh, on the investment, at least from a citizen's perspective, has been less than optimal. It yes. is likely to be even less because uh, the, if the targets are met, uh, what money you spend now is sunk. So, so you, are, you are throwing caution to the wind in, in, in two ways. Here is uh, a, a, a cynical uh, counter-argument. Mm-hmm. And, and, and assume that you, you know, for whatever reason, you don't buy into climate change or, or reduction of uh, carbon emissions. And you then argue that these uh, oil and gas resources constitute real uh, economic assets. To leave them in the ground, undeveloped, in the face of poverty is unjustifiable. Mm-hmm. What, what position uh, does the Natural Resource uh, Governance uh, Institute take with respect to the inherent economic value, at least in the foreseeable future of these assets? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question and one that we hear all the time, you know, when we talk with government officials, even even with with NOCs, but even with um, you know activists within the producer countries, and that in particular for low income countries that have a need for um, investment in in development, um, you know this this uh, the, you know this this question that okay, well we aren't the ones, low-income countries aren't the ones that caused the climate crisis. Um, why should we be expected to bear all the costs of fixing it? And I think that is an entirely appropriate and correct um, question to ask. And just to be clear, our, pres- our position as the Natural Resource Governance Institute is not that um, you know, low-income countries or even middle-income countries should leave all of their oil and gas in the ground. Um, you know, while rich countries continue to exploit and uh, and you know and 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 earn profits off of it, rather, f- from my perspective, the focus in developing and emerging countries is looking at the reality of their own economic futures, and and that's a reality with a lot of uncertainty to it. Absolutely, to you know, to be clear, but there are projects, a significant number of projects that state-owned companies are spending money on today um, that um, are projects that were built for a previous era or projects that would have succeeded in a previous era that simply won't generate returns, even if the world makes moderate progress towards climate change, right? And I mean, for your listeners, the way, you know, the mechanism by which we anticipate this working is um, if, if, there is significant investment in the development of clean energy technologies and a shift in consumption away from um, from the oil and gas sector um, that will result over time in 
the average oil price, you know, over the coming decades being significantly lower than it is today. How low that will be, we don't know. I mean, lots of people estimate things. I'm not a I'm not an oil sector modeler, so we try we tend to take different ranges of oil prices that are generated by by modelers. Um, over time, if that price is low, um, then a lot of these projects that NOCs, as you said, are sinking costs into today, won't break even, right? And so that's money spent today, debts incurred today in some cases that won't generate a return over the long term. And so, you know, the way that we approach this from the developing country perspective is at the time that global capital is shifting away from the oil and gas sector, at the time, at the same time as multinationals are revising downwards their own long-term price forecasts and canceling projects um, that, that no longer project to break even, um, this is also the time for state-owned companies to take those prospects really seriously, right? And so for, you know, from my perspective, it's not cancel all your projects. It is stress test your portfolio in the same way that all oil and gas companies are, are starting, or many oil and gas companies are starting to do. Look at which projects require really rosy assumptions about the future of oil and gas in order to be economically viable. Um, look at you know what serious global climate action that's necessary to save the planet will do, could do, even if we don't know, to long-term uh, the, the long-term viability of projects, and take action in your national interest, um, but very sober action, you know, in line with um, you know a a detailed assessment of risks and what they might mean. Hmm. So uh, I'm listening to you and, and uh, my head is buzzing because the, the one thing that's evident is that whatever the decision is going to be a very costly one. Hmm. Uh, and, 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 and so, you know, for one, uh, if countries come to the party and say, sure, we will cut back and we will put plans in place to move away from fossil fuels and 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 then we will at the same time which which then means that they reduce uh income in the short term but at the same time we'll take that income and then we will invest in new industries and new technologies that are keen all that uh means cost but because yeah. transition to green energy is not going to be free and and i wonder uh you know for those countries that have embraced this concept, especially developing countries, how, how does the world see them fit in this, a foot in this bill rather, or for the cost of decarbonizing on one hand and then transisting into new technologies on the other? Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the multi-trillion dollar question. And you know the way that I look at this is there, there has to be shared responsibility. And by that, I mean, um, as we've been saying, countries that are themselves, um, you know, producers of oil and gas um, have, I would say, a responsibility to their own citizens to think about how they can reinvest their public dollars um, today in starting to develop their own cleaner energy technology and starting to develop um, you know, economic invest in economic alternatives that will enable them to thrive in a low carbon future. And so, you know, from a starting point, I think there is a responsibility of the governments of these producer countries themselves um, to 
really prioritize some of these economic and energy shifts within their own markets. So that's sort of a starting point. That being said, um, the global uh, the global system, and in particular, wealthy countries that are um, that you know are, are themselves the largest emitters that have themselves um, benefited from the oil and gas sector status quo for decades. Um, there is a real urgent need, both I would say a moral need, but also a self-interested need um, for wealthy countries to um, invest in supporting um, green energy transformation within, um, within low-income countries, but in particular, or the, the subset that I'm focusing on, in low-income countries that have been producers of oil and gas themselves. Um, why do I say that that's self-interested um, on the part or in the interest of the global system? Because if these producer countries don't see any real prospects for um, economic transformation, they will continue to double down on what has been the status quo, right? And then yeah. the world as a whole fails to meet its uh, its its climate goals and fails to to tackle global decarbonization. You know, we've seen uh, the week that we're recording this. You know, is the week of the G seven, and the G seven countries have made um, uh, fairly sizable pledges to invest in energy transition in developing uh, countries. In the past, those kinds of pledges haven't actually been acted upon sufficiently. And so I would say that um, there is a real need through traditional aid, but also through investment support um, to for uh, wealthy countries to support adaptation and economic transition within um, low-income oil and gas-producing countries. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier uh, your institute's concern that uh, the economic and uh, financial benefits from uh, national oil, gas, and corporations have not always uh, benefited citizens. Uh, I'm interested now when you mention aid, because, you know, if you think about it, you know, 50 years on, 60 years on, that these state-owned entities have existed, and still we are talking about the need for aid. That, I suppose, uh, is one of the indicators of the failure to govern uh, that you were speaking of, because you would think by now uh, they would be in a position to help themselves, wouldn't you, uh, Patrick? Yeah, and you know, it's it's one of the real challenges of um, extractives-driven economies and oil and gas-driven economies in particular is that you know um, this sort of classic theory of the resource curse. I'm sure other guests of your uh, of your on your on your podcast have talked about this. That um, these are hugely capital-intensive industries. They're industries that. Um, if mismanaged, um, can and in some cases, in many cases, have enriched a privileged few, um, you know, without providing a broader base for um, sustainable economic development. Um, and they have been, in many cases, associated with um, significant corruption, right? Co corruption in the awards of contracting, corruption 
uh, corruption in you know, the spending of these big sums of money. And unfortunately, not in all cases, I, 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 you know, I try not to overgeneralize, but in, in many cases, state-owned oil and gas companies have been sort of at the at the heart of some of uh, you know some of these misgovernance challenges right these are companies that have huge power uh, you know as I said earlier they are controlling massive sums of money they are awarding procurement rights um, that are you know uh, that can really drive the economy and in many cases they haven't been subjected to um, the same kinds of checks and balances that we would expect of public entities, or frankly, even that we would expect of, you know, publicly listed, um, publicly listed companies. And so, you know, there are exceptions, there are some state owned oil and gas uh, companies that have really delivered strong benefits to their citizens. But in many cases, um, the, the absence of really strong corporate governance and strong checks and balances has, has contributed to let's say underdevelopment within uh, within these within these countries so what, when we think about uh, the the cost of decarbonization are, are carbon offsets uh, and uh, a possible solution for some of these countries to fund decarbonization i realize that in some way that does not directly address the environmental challenge but it, it could potentially raise uh, capital uh, wherein uh, you know countries may not be able to uh, generate enough finance to invest in cleaner energy. Yeah, I think I think carbon offsets can be an element of a of of a solution in in some countries, in particular in countries you know that are well situated uh, for uh, for establishing uh, a, a good systems. Um, both from an economic perspective and and you know and also to partially although it doesn't come they you know even all of the carbon offsets in the world wouldn't come close to um uh counterbalancing uh you know the burning of fossil fuels if we don't take really serious action to curtail it um they can be a piece of the solution i think i think countries need to take a multifaceted approach so that is how can they what kinds of technologies do they have access to that can help them generate um, uh, generate public revenues um, it is also figuring out how to invest in um, other productive sectors of the economy so that over time uh, you know the economy is less dependent on money that's coming out from this sector that we know is in decline and so they can be a part of the solution um, but I think that there's a need for a really multifaceted approach both internationally and within uh, within particular countries hmm. um, you know when we speak about uh, the cop 21 cop 22 Paris uh, agreements and the targets uh, one forgets that by and large, these uh, agreements are voluntary and that mm -hmm. uh, countries uh, can stay or leave at will. Yep. Might that not be one of the problems that uh, developing countries face? That uh, let's assume they go full speed and uh, you know, commit to these uh, agreements and targets. And then, a big player such as uh, the United States or China decides under a different government that they are going to pull out, which then means that uh, that agenda cannot be met. 
it, it, you know, how can we be sure that uh, there won't be a, a leadership vacuum which leaves these countries uh, with no direction to to follow, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, it certainly has been the case that global climate uh, ag agreements over the last couple of decades have been uh, unpredictable. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from the United States um, that my government's own actions um, have certainly been unstable over time vis-a-vis -vis climate change. And, you know, I think it's... Uh, I agree with what I think part of what 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 I what I imagine is animating your question, which is that, you know, for how long do developing countries have to try and take action, um, or kind of be driven into action based on, you know, the unpredictable policy debates that are going on within wealthier countries, um, and I guess as I think about this question, I think there are two elements here that um, that that stand out in my mind. One, it's absolutely critical that um, low-income developing and, and, and also emerging countries' um, voices in global climate agreements need to continue to be amplified and that everyone who is making, who is a part of the push for, you know, the global fight against climate change needs to um, do whatever we can to invest in um, in supporting, amplifying, empowering um, uh, the voices, and of course, there are there are lots of climate leaders who are from low-income countries themselves, and they continue to make a major push, so that the considerations and the equity um, for developing countries um, is sort of front and center in these debates and and in this in these global uh, decision making processes that has really been lacking over time and I think there's a need for a continued push um, on that front. But then the other thing I would say is that I think it will be a reality that developing and emerging countries um, can will not be able to predict what's happening and what kinds of leadership and leadership vacuums they will get from uh, or, the, or the world will get, um, you know, going forward on climate and that developing and emerging countries need to um, take serious steps to invest in their own futures. I guess where I would disagree with what some people say, I'm not saying that this is what you're saying, but what some people say, and therefore um, developing countries, low-income countries don't need to take action against climate change. I guess I would say that um, even more because of the leadership vacuum that we sometimes see from larger countries, um, developing countries are at risk of being the victims of climate change, both in terms of their economies, but also obviously from the direct environmental impacts, and therefore um, need to really prioritize what actions they can take to get themselves ready. And uncertainty is going to be a factor in all of this. Um, but, you know, when we talk with our colleagues, both in government and in civil, civil society within low-income oil and gas producing countries, what we hear repeatedly and what we're working on together is, you know, the reality that um, climate change is going to inexorably impact these countries and therefore um, it is really critical um, everywhere in the world to take steps to figure out what the future looks like. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, of course, on one uh, level, I'm 
uh, espousing the notion that there needs to be a global leader. But on the other hand, that has also always been the, uh, if you wish, criticism by developing countries that they are dominated by others. So what you're really saying is that uh, not only is there a, a level of uncertainty, uh, this presents an opportunity for developing countries to lead themselves in this space and not look to others and, right. and essentially be um, masters and mistresses of their own fate. Here is my last question to you. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it departs from uh, state-owned entities per se and, and sovereign government positions on, on uh, climate change. It's, it's, it, it's more about the publics. You know, uh, you and I have, and, and, and many others before you, have uh, had conversations and we focus very much on governments. We focus on um, state-owned entities. We focus on uh, multinationals, national uh, oil companies. Mm -hmm. But uh, very little is said about the public and the role of the public in helping uh, governments uh, progress towards, uh, you know, uh, clean energy and, and so forth. Uh, what, what do you think uh, the public's understanding, if any, is of their role in this space and the extent to which they are, uh, at least for now, uh, contributors to carbon emissions? Uh, there seems yeah. to me always a level of disconnect. Yeah, no, it's a really critical point and one that impacts all of us in our professional lives, but also in our, in our personal lives as well. Um, I guess I would answer on, in, in two different ways in terms of how can the public think about its responsibility. One is um, that as individual citizens of the world, so to speak, obviously we all have a responsibility to engage in clean practices um, to the maximum degree that we can, um, you know, in order to reduce our individual um, carbon footprints, so to speak. Um, you know, the International Energy Agency just came out a, a, a few weeks ago with um, this report on how to get to net zero by 2050. And, you know, they modeled out basically what they see as the most um, likely pathway, and it would require a lot of dramatic changes. And if I'm remembering right, I might get the exact figure wrong, but if I'm remembering right, I think that the IEA said that 4% of the emissions reductions that they see um, would be linked to um, essentially um, uh, kind of personal habits or, or the actions that individuals can take. Things like, um, you know, taking public transportation instead of driving or reducing flights and those kinds of things. And so you think of it and you say, okay, 4%, that's not, uh, and that's 4% of the kind of cumulative reduction in emissions that would be necessary can be sort of, you know, under the control of individuals in their personal choices. You, you think about that and you say, okay, 4%, that's not that big a share of the global total, um, but it does, it does matter, right? So there are things that we can do as individuals, of course, and many other, you know, cl climate specialists are better placed to kind of, um, you know, be experts on that than, than I am. But I would say that there's a there's also a bigger piece here, and you know the, the other um, that other ninety six percent depends on um, you know systems being improved, right, and systems um, you know being changed. It's such that um, you know fundamentally across the economy there is lower consumption of of fossil fuels and and lower emissions. And so I guess I would say that I think the other thing that citizens 
can and should do is to think about the responsibilities that they have in the choices that they make, in the pressure that they put on their governments, in the pressure that they put on, on companies to try to um, prioritize real changes, right? Reducing subsidies of um, fossil fuels in all of their forms, right? Really changing the kinds of public incentives, big public incentives that that perpetuate the status quo in ways that are that are dangerous to all of us. And so I would say, you know, beyond the kind of choices that we make individually, I think sort of, you know, what we do with our votes, with the with the pressure that we put on, um, you know, those around us for systemic change, I think is something that that all citizens can have responsibility to to, to do. That's wonderful. Well, uh... Let's leave it at that for now, uh, shall we, Patrick? Uh, thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Uh, let's keep the conversation going and thank you for your indulgence. Thank you so much, Sheila, for the opportunity to be with you and more broadly for stimulating these tough conversations. Very much uh, appreciated.